The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Demons Roam and Twilight's Gloam, A Quantum Gate, and An Interdimensional Date. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. Hey, we talked to Lois McMaster Bujol this time about her new book, Penrick's Travels. Plus, Bain publisher Tony Weiskopf joins us for the interview. It's a fun discussion of all things Bujold, as Lois discusses the book and life and reading and all sorts of great stuff to give you insight into this wonderful writer. This is the first of a two-part interview, and we'll bring you part two next time, of course. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. The May E-Arcs are out. Now, an E-Arc is the rainbow-colored hoofmark leavings on the sidewalks of reality, created by a time-traveling unicorn breaking like crazy when it realizes it's about to manifest in spring 2020. Okay, no, that's not what an E-Arc is at all. An E-Arc is an electronic advanced reading copy. These are e-books that we put out in advance that might include, for instance, entries in your favorite series or by one of your favorite authors, and there are some new books that you might want to try out. And the thing about them is, although they have not exactly been completely proofread, these are like galleys that one would send out to reviewers and such, they are usually about three to four months early. So you get them before anyone else, and you can check these out. We sell them at the Bain.com website at Bain eBooks. Out now in EARC format is 1636 The Atlantic Encounter by Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt. The future of the new world hangs in the balance. The recently created United States of Europe turns its attention to the new world, where the English have ceded their colonial claims to France. The time-displaced Americans know about the path that led to their own United States in North America. Modern democracy was born, but a bitter price was paid. Can a new course be taken? Can the smoldering sins of a future yet to be become the embers that fire a more perfect freedom in the present? If anybody can make it so, it will be the can-do folks from Grantville. And out in May in EARC is Days of Burning, Days of Wrath, a new Carrera novel by Tom Cratman. A new Carrera rises. When Patricio Carrera's family was murdered by Salafist terrorists, the assassins probably didn't expect to create an implacable conqueror who would stop at nothing to wreak his vengeance, but that is what they did accomplish. Now, after decades of war and preparation for war in Carrera's adopted homeland of Balboa, the last of the Tarin Union expeditionary forces collapses. Amid the chaos of war, a new leader arises. He is Hamilcar, Carrera's young son. Hamilcar stands poised to obliterate the last enemy base on his planet. Revenge was always going to be his, but now Carrera may finally get what he least expected, renewal. 
And finally out in New York in May is Cosmic Corsairs, edited by Hank Davis and Christopher Rocchio. Space Pirates Rule. Rousing adventure, daring do, and brave heroes battling scurvy galactic vermin. A treasure chest of tales of the greatest pirate adventure grounds of all time. The outer reaches of space itself. Your crewmates include Robert Silverberg, Elizabeth Bair and Sarah Monet, Larry Niven, Fritz Leiber, Sarah A. Hoyt, James H. Schmidt, and more. Cosmic Corsair's E-Arc, edited by Hank Davis and Christopher Rocchio. Days of Burning, Days of Wrath E-Arc, the new Carrera novel by Tom Kratman. And 1636, The Atlantic Encounter by Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt are now available exclusively at Bain eBooks. Go to Bain.com and check them out. This is part one of a two-part interview with Lois McMaster Bujold and Tony Weiskopf discussing Penrick's travels. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. Welcome, Lois McMaster Bujold, and hey, Tony Weiskopf, uh, publisher of Bain, is also with us here. Hello. Yay. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. A science fiction legend, Lois McMaster Bujold, has won seven Hugo Awards and three Nebula Awards. Her Miles Forkosigan saga is massively popular science fiction mainstay. Um, bestsellers that won those Hugos are The War Game, Barriar, Mirror Dance. Um, these were in the 90s. Uh, Paladin of Souls also won in, uh, in that's not a Forkosigan novel, in 2004, which also won a Nebula. Um, she's yeah, the author of and many the other. And like yes, the Locust Award. Yes, and the Locust you have several locusts as well. Um, yes, awards. in fact, for novels and novellas, yeah. things yeah. along the way. It's been a long a accumulation. Long, yeah. And uh, most recently, in 2020, um, Lois, you were named the 36th Damon Knight Grand Master by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, um, which is a high honor for that uh, for that organization. I've, I've occasionally remarked that the meaning of any war- award is created by the works that have won them. And so if you look down the list of the 35 prior grandmasters, it's like all people that, you know, are pretty cool company to be in. That was, that was neat. Out now at Booksellers Everywhere is Penrick's Travels by Louis mm-hmm. McMaster Bujold. I guess maybe we should set up the book a little bit before I start asking you, like, what it all means. What <laughs> <laughs> um, is the meaning of life? Uh, we we talked before about Penrick's progress, which is the uh, the uh, three novellas that sort of introduce us, and it's not the order you wrote them, but it's time wise uh, before Penrick's travels. Um, and we're in your do you call it the Seven Kingdoms world, something like that? Uh, the world of the five gods. Five gods. I'm sorry. Yep. And kingdoms. Somebody else we. Yeah. Sure. And there's I, twelve I, kingdoms fact, out there too, and. Other numbers of kingdoms. <laughs> the world of the five gods. Sorry, this is the world um, of the and, five gods. It's very theology centric. Yeah. How does the all right? So Penrick is a sorcerer uh, when we meet him in Penrick's travel, but he wasn't always a sorcerer. And what does it mean to be a sorcerer? And and uh, what's the rules of the magic in this world? And etc. Part of the world building. Gosh, it's hard to know how ba- how far back to start. Uh, 
the world of the five gods, which was originally dubbed the Chalian series, got started way back at the turn of the millennium when I wrote The Curse of Chalian, which was, you know, at the time going to be a standalone big fantasy book. <laughs> um, and, of course, the way they do, uh, it spawned sequels. We had Paladin with Souls, which is very successful. Uh, but having done the Long Vorkosigan series with a kind of being constrained by a particular set of characters, a particular family, a particular locus, yeah, it was very, yeah, it was a very popular and successful one. I wanted to, I was playing with series structures actually, which I did some more of. Um, I wanted to set up a series structure that would be more open-ended, um, that, you know, would not require me to continue with the same cast. So I could move around. So I came up with the idea of a thematic series. It would be a closed series of five novels, each one focusing on the concerns of each of the five gods. And I got the first one was Casserole's uh, book, and uh, the goddess was the daughter of spring. Uh, that was kind of the, the prime mover behind the scenes in that one. Uh, the second book was Ista's book, and her god was the bastard, the god of all things out of season, the trickster god who Turns out to be way more interesting than all the others. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the third book uh, concentrated on a character named Ingri, and it, to the immense confusion of the readers, uh, dropped back a couple centuries in time and over a couple of realms in geography, and you know took up a completely different story uh, that you know inspired by a completely different set of historical events and contexts, um, and. Uh, the readers who went plunging into it expecting a continuation, you know, of their favorite characters were very taken aback. They didn't know how to process this one. Mm. Um, so it uh, it suffered a little from that, you know, but people who approach it first or without those expectations seem to have a more successful first read. Then mm. some of them come around and read it again, and, oh, that was much better than I thought when I was waiting for it to turn into some other book. Yeah. That's the way yeah. you do. Um, you seem to... to to write that way um occasion just throwing in the odd book um it, it seems like a, a bujoldian motif in fact that every three books you get the the weird one um that lois <laughs> just had to write is that is that correct or any or i'm not you know i'm not sure how the accounting would work out but yeah yeah i, mean, I want to do something else you know, said all i have to say about this if i have nothing more to say i shut up yeah <laughs> so, uh, so there's that. <laughs> but once in a while, and you know, something, you know, enough time that passes, I learn new things, and you know, the crystals begin to grow again, and it may or may not fit in that universe. So, at any rate, uh, getting back to Penrick, um, I had done the three uh, three novels, and, I, and there were two more, and I just wasn't very interested in those gods, but I was interested in series structure, so I often wrote. Uh, uh, the Sharing Knife Tetralogy mm-hmm. eventually became a tetralogy, which was one story in four volumes. Uh, yep. Just either it's one continuous flowing thing, and it's you know it's not cut up the way the Burkosigan or the uh, even more so the the Chalian books were. Yeah, we, we uh, so didn't that, get to publish that, but it's still really really yeah. good. So yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it was uh, it was interesting to do. I was working on a different substrate of history because. Yeah, a lot of fantasy plays with history, uh, the way yep. science fiction plays with science. It's like the same game, but a different, you know, a different uh, uh, set of ingredients, but similar rules, perhaps. 
Um, but uh, so I so I played with American history. I played with a whole lot of things in that, and series structure and the characters, and just going where the story led me. Um, so that went okay, and then I came back to Maine and did a bunch of more stuff for you because. I'd had enough time off, I guess, that the brain had recharged. <laughs> um, and then I hit age 65, and, you know, it's this retirement thing. You know, maybe I could – but what does retirement mean for a writer? You know, we're all mm. self-employed. We're all cranky. We're all, you know, working in our houses anyway. You know, <laughs> people, people, when they retire, say, I want to stay home and write a book. Well, I'm already doing that. <laughs> if they want to stay home more, yeah. So what I finally decided was I would retire from the PR and the travel and the uh, conventions and whatnot. And all the uh, I do public speaking. I've learned to do it, but it's not something I enjoy. You know, I do it because it needs to be done. You know. <clears throat> My take on it was uh, was doing uh, doing speeches and whatnot is like being the non-swimming parent of a of a child who has just fallen to, into a torrent. Of water, mm-hmm. yeah. Are you going to jump in after them or not? Well, you can't not jump, but you don't see what good can come of it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like my baby book; it is drowning. And you do the PR, but uh, it depends on the writer. Some writers are extroverts and they thrive on uh, on the public uh, relations stuff, and others are introverts and you know have to like go out and pretend to be extroverts for short periods and then then go recover for a while. Anyway, so I thought I would do that. Um, because I could, and uh, I wanted to do very independent things. And of course, I've been watching um, ebooks come up all this time, and going way back to fiction-wise at the very beginning. Anybody remember fiction-wise? Um, yep. And uh, <laughs> so I was nice interested. <laughs> yeah, I was interested in the the indie work you know, that people were doing and talking about so much. And I will write a novella because that will be independent and all mine and. Yeah, and that's how kind of one of the motivations for Penrick. Yeah, I will write something less than novel length <laughs> because I'm getting old and lazy. And also, I like novellas. Um, my yeah. very first novella was for Bain way back, Freelancers. Uh, yeah, yeah. In the, mm-hmm. in the 80s. It was like, well, I'd never done that length before, and I kind of liked it. Um, well, I was just thinking it's sort of interesting that that the uh, that, that Penrick himself um, isn't really free. Um, you know, he he always has these constraints on him. So mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, just exploring the, the the notion of what it is that, that free will can mean when you have these constraints. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but that's kind of a fun theme that goes through this. But, of course, I, I just love Penrick. I mean, he's, he's a great character, um, and I, I really enjoy spending time with him. So, yeah. um, Something I'm more conscious of as a reader as well as a writer is that I want to spend time in the in congenial heads. Yes, uh, yeah. You know, I want to be in a, <laughs> yeah, regardless of what's going on in the world around, the headspace or the the kind of, writer's headspace that we're in uh, worldview or something uh, mm-hmm. has to not be icky yeah uh, <laughs> yeah be an icky headspace there was a recent interview of you in Clark's world where you were talking about this a little bit it's like you don't read for for moral improvement anymore you've you've passed that point and now you just don't want to read dystopias and and horror and things like that anymore you said something along those lines could you expand on that yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, well, it's, it's you know, it's the headspace I want to be for my limited leisure reading time. I also have aging eye issues, so I can't, you know, my vision of my retirement was that I would spend 24-7 reading, and that's not happening. You know, the, uh, ration my reading because I get eye strain. Um, and I need large print and all those other tedious old people things. Um, so it's kind of, you know, I kind of use my early part of the day good eyes for, you know, work-related reading. And then in the afternoon and evening, I need to switch to something else other than like watching great courses and lots of anime. We'll get to that. Um, <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, so it's not quite, you know, I'm still having interesting input, but it's not quite in the form I was expecting. So I'm not keeping up with the genre nearly as much as I should. Well, what I was about, just wondering what your, what your latest work reading is right now. Oh, I'm kind of off right now. I'm just just finished. Um, <laughs> the uh, I've just published as an independent e-novella the eighth Penrick book. If I write one more, that'll be enough for another collection. Um that's me rubbing and, my hands together, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, kind of based, it's not based on immediate reading so much as an accumulation of reading over the years. Uh, uh, Penrick, in a world that is roughly analogous to the 14th century mm-hmm. uh, in our world, it's not our world and I can do anything I want with it, you know, alter it at will. But yeah, in in terms of the world of the stories that have already gone before, that would be the you know that would be the approximate you know uh, mode of the thing. And we all know what happened in the middle of the 14th century, big event, uh, Black Plague. And there have been many more uh, contagions since then. Uh, I've always been interested in the history of medicine and the history of science. And we have we have things like you know, Walter Reed figuring out. Yellow Fever. I think I read a kid's book about that back in fifth grade. But I still remember <laughs> mm-hmm. going off to the going off to the hut with his volunteers and all the soiled sheets and proving that it, you know it was actually transmitted by mosquitoes, not by not by bedding or uh, contact, which was pretty damn heroic and pretty damn crazy at the time. But he, you know, <laughs> that's why they named the army hospital after him. And there have been lots and lots of these guys through history that have, uh, you know, have solved these problems. Uh, yeah, and some of them are pretty hair-raising, and some of their trials didn't work out. You read about the early history of transfusions, uh, mm. where they were part of the time it saved people's lives, and part of the time it killed them, and they couldn't figure out why. Um, yeah. yeah. So, you know, all of that, all of that. Uh, well, you have a, uh, you have a trip painting in the in the book <laughs> yeah that was in the, the, the beginning of Penrick's mission actually which is the first story in Penrick's travels the, the book mm. that's coming out this month it's lost in the distribution system somewhere uh, right at the moment um, but uh, but yeah you know, all that history of medicine stuff is, is something that, that I thought I could use uh, so actually I had uh, I had the idea for the most recent the, well, uh, last year when I was also thinking about the pirate story, which was another idea that had been kicking around for a while, Henrik uh, versus pirates. <laughs> I don't like pirates any better than he does. Um, I wanted to have unromantic pirates, and that uh, story kind of took over. And that was so. That was last year's, and 
So I came to a very late start on this one. It is totally not intended to be topical. And it <laughs> ended up being, no, anyway, the title for anyone who's curious is The Physicians of Bill Nock, and it's been out for less than a week. Yeah. But uh, but back to Henrik's mission and, and the beginning of that story, I suppose. Talk more about that. What is um, the the way that the, let's just get the basic down of it, there are five gods and little pieces of those gods sometimes get broken off in various ways. And these are demons and demons live in beings, living beings and jump between them. And they get gather impressions from those things they live in. Uh-huh. Yeah. Demons uh, in this world and cosmology are little bits of pure chaos that uh, bastard is the God of chaos and disorder. Uh, and entropy. Um, so um, they're little bits of escaped chaos uh, from the bastard's hell, is the way people phrase it. Uh, get into the world and start taking up form, uh, depending on where they've been, who they've been. They, the catchphrase is a being of spirit cannot live in the world of matter without matter to support it. So uh, every uh, every supernatural entity in this world uh, has to be basically possessing or possessed by uh, some creature you know, give it life and from whom it is you know, parasitical or symbiotic um, thinking back you know, the first place I ever encountered that concept was probably Hal Clement's novel, novel Needle which mm-hmm. I read back in my teens sometime uh, and then there was also uh, Heinlein's uh, sixth column that was the one with the Mm-hmm. The parasitical yeah. aliens, yeah. So yeah. that idea yeah. has been been around for a long time. Then gave it a more sort of theological bent in this in this universe. Um, so if a demon get out gets out in the world, it will occupy an animal. Um, having a lot of chaos being generated in you is generally bad for your health. Uh, the animal dies, and the demon will jump to another animal. If it jumps to a human. Uh, it will suddenly acquire language and a whole you know, higher level of uh, existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so demons always try to jump to stronger creatures, more complex creatures. Um, and uh, so if you've, a demon has been in a human, it picks up an imprint of that human. So when it goes to the next human, it takes it along. So it's like having a ghost image living in your head uh, mm-hmm. from all the prior writers. And the demon you know, is a chaotic neutral, really, describes it. It picks up everything good and evil about it from the people it's in. Uh, so, you know, a demon may be a good demon if it's been in good, honest people, and it may be not. Sociopaths, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, depending. Um, but so, so in some ways, it's, it's not just Penrick's proge- progress, it's the demon's progress, too, that we're following. Yeah, because the demon that Penrick picked up quite by accident, as far as he knows, when he came upon a dying sim- temple sorceress by the road uh, back when he was 19, um, after a demon jumped to him, uh, the demon mm-hmm. had been in 10 different women before, so they had like 200 years of life in the world accumulated. Actually, more than this, because it picks up the memories of the women before they had the demon. You know, so it's actually probably like 400 years of lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in this demon, which makes her a very complicated creature. Um, and um, trying to, to sort of ride herd on this, this sudden influx of like 10 older sisters in your head, um, all <laughs> trying to talk at once. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of obligate multiple personality disorder. The uh, the trick with the demonology is that the, the person, uh, the fleshly person, really needs to be in charge. If the demon takes over, uh, the chaotic uh, impulses come to the fore and things go downhill. Uh, so it's it's an interesting balancing act to get, you know, get the magical powers and the knowledge from the demon without actually letting it take over and, and drive the car. And there's a whole substrate of, of the cast of people who th- this is their job. Um, the demon, by the way, in Penrick, is he's named the collective of all these women uh, impressions and the demon itself, Desdemona, right? And it's all women. He's the first guy. The temple makes a habit of uh, handing on demons to persons of the like sex. You know, the temple isn't always in control, so it's not, you know, it's not that unusual, but it's not what the temple does when the temple is trying. <laughs> so we get... Uh, we get some gender issues that go along with this, as well as uh, age issues. Okay, play with a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Particularly if he happens to fall in love, which may happen in Penrick's travels. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, yeah, he likes girls. <laughs> he's a very handsome young man, so he gets hit on by both sexes. This is something he's had to like deal with for a while. Um, yeah, but uh, but. Yeah. But if you marry Penrick, or if you get with Penrick, you, you're with Desdemona, too. Yep, yep. it comes <laughs> as a set. You can't, you know, so it's, it's like marrying somebody with multiple personalities. Uh, going with them, and this is sort of what happened to his love life in his 20s. And nobody else quite could hack the complexities of, of Penrick as, as he has become. Um, and Desdemona has her own opinions. Yeah, she's got 10 different experiences so you know she's not limited to one kind of uh, identity in terms of sexual identity but six of the women have been mothers you know some of them have had very constrained lives and some of them have had very wild lives there's a lot of female experience bound up in testimony well it's, it's neat the way that that comes out through Penrick's experiences, and because he is he is in charge too. I mean, he's he, he's he's learned that he he has to be, and mm-hmm. and so he 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 he's filtering that, and and he's drawing on it. But but it's not uh, he he tries not to let it drive him, drive him. And um, yeah, I, I think that strength is part of what makes him an attractive character too, <laughs> is that he's been handed. He's been handed this at, at a young age, and um, instead of flinging himself into the ocean, um, he, he's learning how to deal with it. Oh, that's, yeah, that, 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 that's, that I think is part of the fun of this series. Yeah. So. With, with his internal delicacy and diplomacy, he gets a lot more cooperation from his demon than he would be if he were afraid and trying to dominate um, so that they become a, a genuine team. And, yeah. Uh, very synergistically powerful as a result because uh, they respect each other and 
can get you know can get things done because uh, Desdemona is uh, because of her age and experience a very powerful demon uh, in this version of demonology. And he, he tries so to use his powers for good. And, and one of the things that he does is he gets rid of fleas. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the very first thing he learned how to do. <laughs> and that came around again in this story. Still revisiting. Yeah, very useful for him because he, um, after doing magic, he's got all this this chaos to to dispense with that he has to... I mean, it's got to go somewhere, and it's got to basically kill something living, right? Or otherwise be shed. Uh, he can have, like, generate accidents around him. Um, but, you know, it's, it's better whenever you're going to dump your chaos in that it be something directed uh, and not random. <laughs> uh, I think we saw an early temple sorceress with the character of Halana in The Hallowed Hunt, who uh, shedding chaos like mad because she was pregnant and had to keep her internal chaos levels low. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sort of things were falling apart around her as she walked through. <laughs> <and> wheel <laughs> fell off. <laughs> Beer went sour. Everything happened. Well, Penrick, at, uh, at one point he reflects back on, it's not in the book, but it's a memory he has of when he was a healer where um, he was he was using a lot of magic, and uh, he had a deal with the local butcher to do his slaughters for him. Yeah, that's, that's come up again. It's a way of doing the controlled thing you need to do, and also, you know, um, it doesn't add any harm to the world. It's actually a gentler way for the creatures to die if you're going to make food animals out of them. I'm not yeah. a vegetarian, so, you know, we've got to face these things. Um okay. So, uh, so there's there was all that, uh, but yeah, the uh, the ultimate, I guess, thinking behind the magic is that the chaos magic, the demonic magic, which you call downhill, is basically entropic. Uh, it runs downhill just the way living beings do, because mm-hmm. we live by taking in order around us and breaking it down and releasing greater disorder. That's what biology does, uh, that biochemistry in our bodies. Um, and, you know, we can, we can grow and become more ordered, but it is a cost that we shed around us uh, you know, in every exhalation we make. So, uh, so it's a very, actually very natural form of magic. Uh, but, uh, and it has its built-in limits, which you want in a story. Mm-hmm. Penrick is all right. There's three novellas, um, and the in in Penrick's travels, they're very closely related. Same characters, um, different adventures, and it's in it's uh, it, it really felt to me like you know it's a novel. Um, it's it's a you know it's a walk-in peripatetic novel, but it's a novel. Um, so Penrick's mission is the first third. Um, Penrick is going to this. Now, I get the impression this is sort of like an Adriatic Sea sort of island-dominated world. Um, he's going to Sidonia. Yeah, Chalionese Greek Greece, but it's a Greece without Rome. And uh, yeah, Alexander the Great turned in the opposite direction when he went off to conquer a couple of millennia ago, and this is kind of the remnant. It, uh, it's inspired by, but not the same as the Byzantines. Um, 
you know, it's kind of Sidonia is the the remnants of a of an empire that was once much larger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is sent there as an envoy from uh, the prior place he was working, which was sort of the equivalent of you know Chalinese Venice, Italy. Uh, except most of Italy is now an island chain. Um, <laughs> so we did not have the Romans. I don't love the Romans any more than I love pirates. <laughs> <laughs> interesting group, but God, they were brutal. Um, so, uh, and he gets uh, so he gets thrown into a dungeon, a bottle dungeon, as we are reminded, which no one ever escapes from. And and then we also are following the uh, saga um, separately of of Nicus and Adelis. Can you sort of set up the beginning of the novella? Yeah, uh, I've. Uh, I've done dual and multiple viewpoints in the Penric stories before. Actually, the second Penric, Penric and Shaman, had three viewpoints. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is yeah, not a shouldn't be too much of a surprise to readers who've been following. Uh, but the uh, the woman he meets in Sidonia is the twin sister of the Sidonian general that Penric had been secretly sent to negotiate with uh, the uh, Duke of. Adria was trying to uh, suborn him or uh, bring him over, hire him, basically, uh, to to his own uh, military. Uh, the general, uh, Adela Sarasadia, uh, had been running into trouble in his own imperial court. Uh, he was a little too successful. And <laughs> Byzantines had ways of getting rid of their too successful generals because... <laughs> A whole bunch of them through history had taken their armies and then taken the throne. Uh, so it's like there's there's a, a long history of these dudes. Uh, so yeah, Shades of Belisarius, right? <laughs> yeah, basically, essentially, yeah, I read that way back in my youth. Uh, a whole <laughs> bunch of echoes of that, actually. <laughs> it's a, uh, what was it? I guess it was just titled Belisarius. It was the Robert Graves novel. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that was that was a great book, but um, it's still still remembered years later, ages since I revisited. Anyway, so there's a, a little touch of Belisarius in in Dallas, um, but uh, but he ran into trouble with his own government, and they decided, you know, first of all, they you know kind of sent him off to the province, and then they decided that he was just too dangerous because he was just too popular, and. Uh, in the in the opening bit, uh, he has been arrested and blinded, uh, which is something they did. Uh, it's considered a kinder, gentler way of getting guys off the stage than execution. Uh, no, seriously, we want you to yeah. retire. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and we will make sure of it. They had a rule somewhere that you know, anyone who took the throne couldn't be had to be not physically impaired in any way. Um, uh-huh. which is a very Roman idea, actually, um, uh-huh. inherited from that strain. But, uh, but yeah, blinding was a way of getting these guys off stage without actually murdering them, um, judicially or otherwise. Yeah. And they did it a lot. It's really disturbing. <laughs> so, anyway, this happened to poor Adelis, and um, this Adelis was retrieved by his sister, you know, once he'd been blinded, he was, you know, they handed him over. Uh, the other thing they did to 
get people off stage with castration, but we did not take the story in that direction. Um, yeah. Uh, and you know, so they're both very distraught, and this is this is the point at which Penrick finds them, because he's been sent to talk to this guy, and all of a sudden the situation has totally changed out from under him, and it's it's kind of his fault because they were used the papers he was carrying to frame Adelis. Mm-hmm. Um, so he feels obliged to like do something about this. Uh, we learn gradually through the course of the story that in his 20s, in you know, a part of the story that I have so far skipped over, uh, he studied medicine uh, back in Martinsbridge, uh, where he was mm-hmm. first learning to be a, be a, a, a temple sorcerer. Uh, two of Dessa's best bonus prior writers had also been temple physicians, trained temple physicians with long careers. Uh, so so it, made, it made sense, right? Yeah. So basically, when when Penn started to study, it was like becoming a walking group practice. He had all this uh, prior training to draw on, you know, plus you know what he was learning himself, uh, and he became very good at it. But also discovered the downsides, which I will let readers of the story discover. It ends up being a little backstory thing in 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 the course of this story about why he had, why he does not practice medicine anymore. Yep. Um, so, uh, so there was that. Uh, and then, actually, after I wrote Penrick's mission, uh, which is you know, Penrick and teams up with with Adelis and Nikki's the the woman, the sister, and smuggles them out of Sidonia uh, over the border to Orbis. Um, but um, after I wrote Penrick's mission, which kind of stopped in the middle of their travels, I actually wrote Penrick's Fox next, and sort of. Dropped huh. back and did that story because it was it was ready to go and the other one wasn't it wasn't cooked yet it wasn't mm-hmm. wasn't assembled by whatever part of my brain assembles so that <laughs> one was out of order which confused the heck out of readers who were expecting as usual a chronological <laughs> continuation huh it seems it sounds like we need to do another one of those uh, life and times of uh, Penrick things and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or order written is not the is not the reading order necessarily <laughs> yeah well, it keeps the internet you know it gives them to something to discuss forever yeah what order should we read these in yeah. right same, same as Vorkosigan books but kind of in miniature then the, the number can change. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for something like me, uh, do we change the numbers or do we just let people figure it out on their own? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, we do have them now. The way that Tony has assembled them is not the order you wrote them in. It's, but it is chronological because the first three novellas are pre-stage, pre-stage this one, uh, Penrick's Travels. So we're... We are putting them out in the so so far. Yeah, so far, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they, they could change. <laughs> well, Penrick's Fox is in the last one, so. yeah. <laughs> even though she yeah, wrote it later. There's a few things in Penrick's twenties that you know I, I'd like to visit before I you know get too far away from him as a character. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. it's hard to go back with characters. It's hard to remember what they didn't know. Yeah, uh, and uh, also as you go on with characters. Uh, Something. If you go back and write something important, there's a question of why does this never? Why did they never remember it? Why does it not affect them? Right. So that's a tricky, tricky thing to do. You can do small scale uh, prequel stories. Yeah, I could do, for example, I could do a couple of short ones and put them together and still have you know a marketable unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not 
you know, I'm not restricted to the novella length. Um, no. But people oh, no. expect a certain word count if you know, if you're asking them to pay money. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us some more about Nick Nikis no Nikis, um, because she's Penrit falls in love with her. And a lot of the book is about that process and what it means for a sorcerer to fall in love and what it means for the woman, too. Um, why? What does he see in her? Um, she's about the same age as him, right? Um, because she's been Madame Katai. She's 30 years old. Um, she's you know, getting older for a woman in that kind of pre-industrial world. Uh, but she has a whole angsty backstory of her own. She, was, you know, she grew up in a military family. Her father was a general. Her and Adelis's father, which I call him the old general because I don't believe in burdening my readers with any more names than I have to. Um, <laughs> and she has uh, a rather complicated family history. Uh, Adelis is actually the son of the general and his first wife, and Nikki's was the daughter of the general and his concubine, his official concubine, uh, who through a accidents of whatever were both born on the same day, so they call themselves twins. Um, hmm. and well the you know, actually half brother and sister. Uh but mm-hmm. grown up, you know, effectively raised as twins in a household with two mothers. Uh because the the mother, the uh, first wife and the concubine got along very well. Um the first wife had fertility problems for many, many years, which is why the, the concubine was brought in. And that, that whole story comes up in uh, the third part of... Yeah, that's uh, The Prisoner of Lemnos. We get into that mm-hmm. backstory. Uh, because that is said, the story of the rescue of Nix's mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so Nikki grew up in a household that was already, you know, more complex than the American nuclear family. <laughs> um, and she was married at a normally young age to a, to a soldier, an officer, uh, one of the Dallas's friends. And it seemed fine, but uh, but he was killed uh, and left her a widow, uh, and they had not had kids yet. So. She you know, isn't sure whether it was him or her, or the fact that he was away all the time. Uh, she doesn't know if she's barren, so that's a kind of thing riding in the back of her mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and the question is, you know, should she remarry? She's of an age you know, where women did. Um, but the first marriage, you know, it wasn't, it, the marriage wasn't bad, but the ending of it was disastrous. And, you know, she's not in any hurry to get back into that kind of relationship. Um, so, uh, so when, when she meets Penrick, and is quite impressed by him, uh, she's nonetheless, you know, not rushing into romance herself. Uh, so Penrick, uh, Penrick will need to court her. That was part one of a two-part interview with Lois McMaster Bujold and Tony Weiskopf discussing Penrick's travels. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Salarian League. For hundreds of years, they have borne the banner of human civilization. 
but the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has won the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Salarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. The Golden Olive Restaurant. City of Old Chicago, Sol System, Solarian League. So, what do you think of Raimund's latest revelation? Lupe Blanton asked, as she and Wang Jinghuan finished punching their orders into the privacy-screened booth's terminal. From where I sit, if there's really anything to it, we may need to rethink our position on who the other guys really are, or if they exist at all for that matter. First, let's remember we're talking about Raymond, Wang observed, pouring tea into her cup from the self-warming pot which had been waiting in their booth when they arrived. That automatically means there's an agenda behind it. You know that even better than I do, since you unfortunately have to work with him, or around him, on an ongoing basis. Second, we know damned well that all of his patrons, or the ones we've been able to identify at least, have strong vested interests in proving the Mantis are behind anything that goes south in the fringe. And third, I don't believe for one second that Oroville Borregos would be careless or stupid enough to be caught talking to the Mantis or anyone else if he seriously contemplates anything of which your esteemed superiors might disapprove. A masterly summation? Blanton smiled thinly. She sat back on her side of the table, playing with a fork, and despite the smile, her eyes were dark. What really worries me is that Ado doesn't have any option but to take his report seriously. I'm pretty sure he doesn't trust the disinterested impartiality of what Raimund's reporting any farther than I do, but there's so much of it. And he's upping the ante if he's handing over genuine photos of Manticorn naval officers, Wang agreed especially if they turn out to be genuine Manticorn officers. And I'm assuming from Uktomskoy's reaction that they did? Of course they did, Blanton said. Frankly, though, that worries me less than some other aspects of it. Imagery, especially bad imagery that has to be digitally enhanced as much as this did, is easy enough to fake. And there's no telling who may have slipped file imagery of completely non-existent Manticorans into Frontier Security's databases for it to be compared to. I doubt Raimund did it, because there'd be too much risk of that blowing up in his face if anyone starts fact-checking his reports. He's been around the block way too many times to leave a trail of breadcrumbs that might lead back to him. But do either of us really think he's the only mole someone like the other guys have in place? Assuming they exist, that is, she added piously. Of course not. Doesn't make me any happier contemplating what we're up against, though, assuming they exist. Wang's smile was even thinner than Blanton's had been. Actually, I'm more intrigued by your third point, Blanton said after a moment. The bit about Barregos not being careless or stupid if he does seriously contemplate anything that might piss off McCartney, 
or Kolokoltsov and the rest of the mandarins for that matter. Do you think he really could be contemplating something? Wang gazed down into her teacup for several seconds, lips pursed while she considered her response. Then she looked back up to meet Blanton's gaze. Last year, she began, Noritoshi had me send one of my most trusted people, Jersey Scarlatti. He's a major, I don't think you know him, out to Maya. She arched an eyebrow at Blanton, who nodded. Brigadier Noritoshi Vainola, CO of the Solarian Gendarmerie Intelligence Command, was Wang's immediate superior, Ado Oktomskoy's gendarmerie counterpart. Officially, Jersey was there to conduct an inspection of the local gendarmerie intelligence operations because he'd heard reports that the complex relationship between Erewhon, Haven, and Manticore was spilling over onto Maya. Actually, we'd had reports that Boregos and or Rozak were skimming, skimming more than usual, I mean, off all the contracts they'd been placing with Erewhon. And the reason I chose him was that he and Philip Alfrey, Borrego's senior gendarme, go back a long way. I figured Alfrey would be more likely to cooperate with a friend. And if he didn't, if there was something going on and Alfrey was part of it, Jersey knew him well enough, he'd probably pick up on it. Blanton nodded again. It was a given that any sector governor and the vast majority of frontier fleet sector commanders would find extracurricular ways to line their pockets. In fact, that had been going on for so long, the systematic graft was factored into their salaries. There were, however, limits to how blatant their superiors could permit them to be. Anyway, Alfrey assured Jersey there was no significant peculation going on. In fact, there was less than usual, and he showed Jersey his own internal documentation to prove it. I'm pretty sure from what Jersey said in his off-the-record report to me that he thinks Alfrey has a very comfortable relationship with Borregos but his documentation checked out after the best analysis we could give it. On the other hand, he was there during the Congo incident. He was? Blenton's fingers stopped turning her fork over and over, and her eyes narrowed. The Congo incident was the label the Newsies had pinned on Admiral Luis Rozak's defense of the planet of Verdant Vista. The League was officially ambivalent about Verdant Vista, known to its current occupants as Torch. The Congo system had never been claimed by the League, nor had it been an OFS protectorate system, so its original Mason claimants had possessed no official League recourse to reclaim it when its population, backed by an astonishing united Manticoran Havenite front, rebelled against their ownership in August 1919. Even if they'd tried to call on their many friendly Solarian bribe-takers, the fact that 90-plus percent of the Verdant Vistans had been genetic slaves would have complicated Solarian public opinion. Genetic slavery was something of which all right-thinking Solarians disapproved, even if only a tiny percentage were willing to get off their comfortable posteriors and do anything about it. So even Solarian bureaucrats had to be careful about anything that smacked of collusion with Manpower Inc. On the other side of the ledger, the strong ties between the rebels, the New Torch government, and the Audubon Ballroom had allowed its detractors to suggest it would inevitably become a haven for terrorists. But that had been offset in turn by the Anti-Slavery League's vociferous agitation in favor of officially recognizing Torch as a haven and homeworld for any liberated genetic slave. Overall, it had seemed a situation tailor-made for the Solarian League to stay well clear of, which had made Oroville Borregos' decision as the Maya sector's governor to enter into a defensive agreement with Torch, the cherry on top for some of Frontier Security's policymakers here in Old Chicago. 
but Baregos had strenuously, plausibly, and successfully argued in favor of the agreement as a way to minimize Manticorn and Havenite influence in the system. Nothing could completely freeze them out, he'd acknowledged, especially since the Queen of Torch was the adopted daughter of the infamous Anton Zilwicky and even more infamous Catherine Montaigne. But given the fundamental tension between Manticore and Haven, the united front they'd presented at the time of the rebellion couldn't last, and drawing the newly independent star system into the relationship he was currently cultivating with Erewhon would position the Maya sector to step into the gap when it inevitably occurred. His prediction about the Manti-Havenite relationship's stability had been proven correct barely two T-months later, when Haven resumed hostilities against Manticore, and judging by Torch's scrupulous official disavowal of the ballroom's terrorist tactics, his accompanying argument that he'd be better able to moderate Torch's behavior through a policy of constructive engagement had seemed to make a lot of sense. But then, the preceding October, after less than two T-years, Frontier Fleet had been forced to make good on that defensive agreement. Louise Rozak and his men and women had paid a heavy price to protect Torch against what certainly looked like an intended Eridani edict violation financed by parties unknown. The actual culprits had been renegade members of the People's Republic of Haven's state security, although no one had been prepared to explain exactly what their motives might have been and it was obvious that only a very well-heeled patron could have provided the logistical support the attack had required. Their survivors had been handed over to Eloise Pritchard's Republic for trial, so the League's courts had taken no official cognizance of exactly who might have backed their effort. But there wasn't much question in anyone's mind, and public opinion had shed very few tears over anything that happened to Mason proxies. I wondered about the official accounts, Landon said now, her voice ending on a questioning note, and Wang snorted. You're not alone in that, she said, and I've actually discussed that a little bit with Dowd in light of Jersey's reports. He, Dowd I mean, not Jersey, was pretty bitter about the fact that no one higher up the chain of command had paid any attention to the reports he and Irene put together after it on the basis of Rozak's after-action report. He says Rozak's been telling people for years that the Mantis and Havenites were outstripping the Navy in terms of both weapons and technique, and nobody's paid any damned attention. In fact, it turns out that for at least three T years, Rozak's reports were being suppressed before they ever got to Dowd, much less went farther up the tree, and it looks like, in the absence of any direction from old Chicago, the people on the ground have been trying to do something about it. Officially, Baregos has been buying locally produced warships from Erewhon as a way to inveigle the Erewhonese back into our sphere of influence, and that seems to have been working. But it's painfully evident that another reason Baregos has done it is to get some kind of window into the new technologies. Erewhon's only a minor power compared to Manticore or Haven, and its navy is outside the loop on these latest god-awful weapons the Mantis are deploying against us but it's pretty clear the investment in new hardware is the only reason Rozak was able to defend Torch, although his losses were still pretty damned brutal. More brutal, I think, than was ever officially announced, although Jersey didn't have any confirmation of that at the time, and Dowd hasn't found any since. But what pisses Dowd off is that he worked up an analysis that strongly recommended Vice Admiral Hoover and the Office of Technical Analysis go through Rozak's reports with a fine-toothed comb. If they had, even they would probably have figured out the Haven sector was producing exactly the sort of innovations Hoover's analysts had systematically dismissed for decades 
Nothing in them hinted at the missiles they used against Crandall and Filaretta, but at least we might not have gone into this with such total complacency. Blanton made a harsh sound of agreement, and Wang shrugged. At any rate, she went on, Jersey's report officially cleared Borregos of any financial wrongdoing. After reading it and discussing it with him, I think it raised some fresh questions about just how tight he's gotten with Erewhon, but not financially. Are you suggesting you're worried Maya might be fertile ground for someone to plant seeds of disunity, whether it's the Montes or the other guys? Blanton asked in a careful tone, and Wing shrugged again. I wouldn't say I've been worrying about that, she said. Obviously, with the entire galaxy hell-bent on coming unglued, I'm not prepared to categorically rule it out. But Jersey didn't come home with anything that set off any alarms in that respect. My impression of Borregos, and I hasten to add that this is only my impression, he's one of your people, not ours, and I don't think anyone else in the gendarmeries really thought about it that much, is that he's the sort of fellow who considers all possibilities. He's living in a dangerous neck of the woods, on the periphery of the longest-lasting, most destructive war in galactic history, so far at least, and I think he's a historian. I think he saw the possibility of something like our confrontation with Manticore coming a long time ago, and I think his relationship with Erewhon's designed to provide as close to a pocket of stability as he can create if all the rest of the galaxy goes to hell in a handbasket. How far he's prepared to go to make that happen is an entirely different question, and I don't have anything like enough information to offer an informed opinion on that. But it's the sort of situation, assuming you're right, that could make someone else regard him as either potentially susceptible to seduction or as someone who could be credibly passed off as being susceptible to seduction? Exactly. But if I am right, then he's been doing this tap dance of his for a long time without anyone figuring it out. I admit Maya's a long way from Saul, but that's still an impressive accomplishment. From everything Jersey had to say, he has a genuine knack for attracting personal loyalty, too. So does Admiral Rozak, apparently, and that can be a dangerous capability. Leaving that aside, though, someone able to keep so many balls in the air without anyone back home noticing would never be clumsy enough to let anyone, far less one of Raimund's people's paid stringers, discover that he was meeting secretly with Maddie representatives. You're right about that, Blanton said thoughtfully, beginning to play with her fork again especially since he'd take particular precautions against anyone in Frontier Security finding out about it. I imagine he'd be a lot more worried about in-house leaks than about your people. You probably have a point. Wang sipped tea. They sat in silence for 20 or 30 seconds. Then she set the cup down and sat back. I think we'd better find out about this, she said, and I can only think of one way to do that. Assuming there's time. Blanton pointed out, and Wang nodded. The travel time to Maya was 51 days, one way. I know, she said, but I don't see any other option. Neither do I. Can't be one of my people, though. Even at the best of times, I'd be poaching in Raimund's preserve, and these are hardly the best of times. If we're right about him, the last thing we need is to warn him anyone, especially me, might be looking in his direction. Send your Scarlatti back again? I don't know, Wang replied, answering Blanton's professionally thoughtful tone. On the one hand, 
I trust him, and he was the one who first suggested Borregos' relationship with Erewhon was closer than most people here in old Chicago thought it was. He wouldn't have done that if he'd been in Borregos' pocket. On the other, he is Alfrey's friend, and if Borregos is up to something, Jersey didn't get a clear sniff of it, or report it anyway, the last time he was there. And, she added, coming up with a plausible reason to send him back again so soon without making someone as smooth as Borrego suspicious could be a non-trivial exercise. Lenton's expression showed her agreement with Wang's thought train. I've got at least a half dozen other people I could send if I don't send Jersey back, the colonel said with a shrug. And if I need to, I'll go to Noritoshi and get him to let me pick one of Simeon's people from CID. Either way, I can get someone off to Smoking Frog within a couple of days outside. The sooner the better, Blanton said. Even if she leaves tomorrow, it's going to be mid-September by the time she gets there. And the sooner she could get back would be the end of November, Wang agreed. And that's assuming someone's stupid enough to leave that smoking gun lying around for her to stumble over the instant she steps off the landing shuttle. Not going to happen. So we're probably really looking at not hearing back before the new year. Blanton's expression was sour, and Wang snorted. Any dinosaur's nervous system has a certain amount of built-in delay, she pointed out, and Blanton grimaced. Under the circumstances, I wish you'd picked a different metaphor, she said. Why? Because the dinosaurs are extinct, Blanton replied grimly. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a demon that jumped to a Maine Coon cat after passing through 15 angry beavers, a lugubrious but thoughtful rhinoceros named Fred, and a Canadian Mountie who ironically broke his full neck rescuing the animal from a maple tree, plus thanks, praise, and gratitude for Tony Weisgoff and Lois McMaster Bujold, science fiction grandmaster and author of Henrik's Travels. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs> <laughs>